0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Today, our guest is Professor Miriam Cook, who is the Braxton Craven Professor of Arab Cultures at the Department of Asian and Middle East Studies at Duke University. She received her Master's in Arabic and Islamic Studies at Edinburgh University, Scotland, and her Doctorate in Arabic Literature from St. Anthony's College, Oxford. She has won many awards and fellowships and has had many visiting professorships. Amongst her academic roles is that of the Editor of the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies. Her interests are broad, predominantly in gender and war in modern Arabic literature and Arab women writers' constructions of Islamic feminism, but also in Arab cultural studies generally. She has published a novel, Hayati, My Life, uh, out to that 2000, edited volumes and monographs that include The Anatomy of an Egyptian Intellectual, Yahya Hakri, 1984, War's Other Voices, Women Writers on the Lebanese Civil War 1988, Women and the War Story in 1997, Women Claim Islam, Creating Islamic Feminism Through Literature 2001, Dissident Syria, Making Oppositional Arts Official, uh, and Tribal Modern, Branding New Nations in the Arab Gulf 2014, and finally, the subject of today's interview, Dancing in Damascus, Creativity, Resilience, and Syrian Revolution, out 2017 from Routledge. Welcome to the podcast, Miriam. Thank you, Nazareth, and wonderful to be with you. So we always start off with a bit of a biographical question. How did you come to academia and the study of the Middle East?
1: That was a question that I asked myself very often because um, I was educated in Britain. So I I did um, I went to primary school and uh, and what they call grammar school, which is um, high school in England, and then of course my tertiary education in Scotland and in Oxford. And in all of these institutions, I, I didn't particularly enjoy going to school. And the last thing I ever thought I was ever going to be was um, a professor. So um, I, I think it came as a surprise to me. And it emerged out of my Experience in in Scotland in the University of Edinburgh, where I was between 1967 and 1971. So yes, lots of Islamic studies, some very close readings of texts. Um, I'm sorry to cast Nestorians aspersions. Sorry, my brother's kid, kidding. At, at casting aspersions on my professors in. In Edinburgh, but I learned Arabic without ever putting together my own sentence in the Arabic for four years. I had one class that I, I thought was really, really interesting in the Arab <laughs> cultural program, and that was taught by Pierre Kakia, and it was on modern Arabic literature. And he had taught it as well you know it's a subject that that you should know a little bit about but basically other than Ta Hussein's alayam or his um, biography that has been translated as a childhood in egypt um was that was okay but really modern arabic literature was just not up to the standard of european literature so I kept it a secret that I was not um, in agreement because what I was reading of this modern Arabic literature I thought was not only very, very interesting, but also um, good quality. So I graduated from Edinburgh and was finished with education. I, I didn't want to spend another day in a classroom. And so I wandered around the world for five years, and then found that wherever I went, I was taking an Arabic novel with me. And then I realized that I had become so interested in modern Arabic literature that maybe I would go back into a classroom, and uh, maybe I would even write something about... um, and a novelist or um a genre i didn't really know what i wanted to do other than that i was very interested in mysticism i had spent um quite some time in an ashram in india and so became very interested in hinduism and that then translated into an interest in uh in sufism and so That led me to uh, Mustafa Badawi in Oxford. And when he heard of my interests, and um, I had had made some suggestions about a subject that I might be interested in researching, he said, oh, why don't you read Yahya Haki? Because one can definitely say that his... Best known work, um, Khandelo Maheshim, that he, Badawi, translated into English as The Saint's Lamp, is about a mystical experience. So there I was after bumming around the world, hitchhiking and um, living on a dollar a day for months and months and months, and working for Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in England and Switzerland, I suddenly found myself back in um, an academic setting. And because Oxford didn't demand coursework, that meant that I didn't have to go into a classroom. Mm -hmm. This story is probably going to be very disappointing for some people, that I wasn't born with um, a burning desire to be a a professor.
0: Well, I think it's very. inspiring in other ways that you love the subject matter so much that you made it work. Uh, How do you find it being on the opposite side of the classroom being the teacher?
1: Well, it's a great question uh, because I think it has made me much more tolerant of the bad boys and girls in my class because I sort of recognize myself in some of them. Um, It's, I think always kept me aware of the need to transfer to my students the, the love of the subject that I have that would transcend, you know, tests and quizzes and um, the normal metrics for, for learning. For me, what, what really matters is that when somebody has had a course with me that something resonates for them that will not necessarily keep them in in Arab cultures, but that will inform the way in which they um, learn other subjects, the way in which they they live their lives, that will have been informed by some extraordinary text that they will have read in my class.
0: I think that this, your, your latest book, Dancing in Damascus is such a good example of that, actually, I think. So it's, it's about, I mean, I would characterize the book as sort of this book about it's, it's sort of a history, but also a contemporary study of Syrian resistance and protest art. It begins in the pre-revolutionary period that is before 2011 and then covers the revolution itself. Um, But you see through it, I think, and we'll talk about this, themes of human resilience. Um, And I think One could easily come from the background of another conflict and see this echoed in their own history, but also someone who is not necessarily exposed to this sort of art can then begin to see it replicated in their own life and begin to see these themes. Um, So it's it's quite an accomplishment. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, So for those of our listeners, listeners who may not be familiar with the events of the Syrian Revolution, which we could also refer to as the Syrian Civil War, could you give us a quick rundown? I'd be happy to, but um, with a caveat that
1: I, along with all of the um, creative workers, I think that's the best way to characterize the, the people that I deal with in this book, do not believe at all in the way in which the revolution has been uh, characterized so that now people are talking about a civil war. How can it be a civil war when the government is um, exterminating its own people, Mm -hmm. when the, the Assad regime is um, really almost has been conducting almost a genocide on, on his own people. So, Perhaps we could call it a pure war in the way that Paul Virilio refers to pure war as the, um, the crushing of the people by, by the government. But I think it is absolutely crucial to be in solidarity with those who started the revolution, And whether they've stayed inside the country or whether they have left, their insistence is always on the fact that it's a revolution. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So as many people will know, the Arab Spring broke out in December of 2010 in Tunisia and very quickly spread to Egypt and Yemen, Bahrain and Libya. And of course, in, in the first cases, so Ben Ali um, was forced to escape out of Tunisia, Mubarak was forced to resign, Saleh out of Yemen, and uh, in Libya, of course, we have a similar situation happening to Gaddafi as happened to Saddam Hussein, ultimately found in a hole. So the hole happened to be a sewer for um for Gaddafi, so when these young boys in a town called dara, which is on the border with Jordan in the south, picking up the mood of the moment, scribbled on a wall they were school children returning home from school, they I guess not actually it, it could have been um, graffiti um, cans, um, spray cans, or paint. And they scribbled on a wall, اجاك الدور ya it's your turn, doctor, addressing themselves to Bashar Assad, who's an ophthalmologist, and then scribbling another motto or slogan that had gone around the Arab world, a yurid nizam, the people want the regime to fall unlike what had happened elsewhere, where there was, in the beginning, toleration for these forms of um, expression, artistic expression. So, you know, when El, El General in Tunisia sang his, his famous song um, addressing Raïs Le Bled, who was Ben Ali, so the head of the head of the country, and and told him, your people are suffering, and you've got to go. And Ben Ali didn't punish him immediately. In Dara, it was very different. The boys were immediately picked up, taken to the local um, police station, and they were tortured. News spread like wildfire across Syria. And this, for me, has been so interesting, the way in which news tra- of oh, demonstrations travel so quickly. People just flooded the streets. And the government cracked down. And they cracked down again and again. And the demonstrations continued, particularly on Friday, because Friday was the only day that there was official permission for people to... Assemble because, of course, Friday is the day of the Joma Friday prayer in the mosque. And so the, um, the demonstrations were in, in Syria very different from, from the other countries because, in the other Arab Spring countries, the demonstrations in general happened in one city, usually the capital. So Sana'a in Yemen, and Cairo, Tahrir Square in Egypt, and Tunis in Tunisia, Bahrain, Bahrain. But here, it was almost um, everywhere in the country that that people stood up to the violence, um, the injustice, the radical, cruel injustice of the regime. So that, that, I think, sort of gives a, a timeline for the revolution that continues um, until today. If you were to talk to any of the people that I have written about in Dancing in Damascus, there is not one that would not call it a revolution. In fact, there, a book came out, I think it was three or four months ago, maybe a little earlier, and I think that Wendy Perlman's book, um, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. I think it's on the New York Times bestseller list. Yes, and actually
0: I got to speak to her uh, about two months ago and we featured her book on the podcast.
1: Oh, brilliant. Okay. (laughs) So um, her book came out after, um, after mine, so obviously I couldn't include her. But of the many, many dozens of people that she interviewed, um, they all refer to it as a revolution as well, and in fact, one of her interlocutors says um, it is the international media that has destroyed the revolution by by calling it a civil war
0: I'm really glad you took my bait and sort of explained and and, and... The de- uh, constructed the term, the Syrian civil war, because I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of my Syrian friends who speak anecdotally refer to it as the revolution. And I think a lot of the sentiment, and again, this is echoed in your book and in Wendy Perlman's book, is that to use another term is to quash hope. So um, another term you're really careful with is you refer repeatedly to your actors as artist activists. Um And you begin with this in the period before the Arab Spring um, and particularly deal with the genre of prison writing before the Arab Spring, but also satire. So I want to ask you, what is the relationship of the artist activists and their art in the period prior to the Arab Spring and what purpose did they see their art forming? So you're talking specifically about Syria. Yes. Yeah. Syria.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to be very specific about it because the Syrian situation is really quite different from any other Arab country. Perhaps um, comparable during the 90s to the situation of of Iraqis under Saddam Hussein. But when I was in Syria um, between 95 and 96 for seven months I interviewed writers, uh, filmmakers, um, people um, who had who had been in Hafiz Assad's prisons for uh, for many years. Some terrible prisons. Some refer to the Syrian prisons as um, among the worst, if not the worst, in the world. And so. Art at that time that was being produced, and again, I'm, I'm thinking of art activism as not being specifically image-making, but also um, telling stories and um, yeah, making, making films and videos. It was so, so important that one stay in the country, a country that was ruled with an iron fist, where fear dominated every aspect of everybody's life, and not to leave. Because the assumption there, and this has been true in many Arab countries, that the artist activists feel that once they leave the country, their voice has lost an important gravitas, because what you say, what you write, what you paint, what you shoot with a camera doesn't have the same effect and power when it's done from the safety of London and Paris or New York. And so to stay meant to, to risk um, freedom, sometimes to risk life, to be able to stick to say, speak truth to power and for the people to see that there were, they have among them someone who is daring to resist and resist on their behalf. So there was a sense in which these artists, activists were spokespersons for, for the people. And I analyzed this in my in my two thousand and seven book, Dissident Syria, where I talk about the the various ways in which the Hafiz Assad regime tried to manipulate these artists activists, and so I distinguish between um, permitted criticism and what I call commissioned criticism. Permitted cri- um, criticism. Is that which the regime allows to be distributed, and it can be criticism of um, the schools, it can be, um, it can even be light criticism making fun of something that is happening in, in the government. And it allows for what the Syrians call tanafus, which is to breathe. Um, it, the translation, in general, into English, is a pressure cooker uh, system, and that is tension is is building, building, building among the people, and then at a certain point, it comes so close to breaking into violence that something has to be done. And so the regime had calibrated those moments when things were getting to be so repressive that the system was endangering itself. So people who were involved in permitted criticism were referred to by the people as muharrij or court jester. Yes, it makes us feel better, but anyhow, this guy is never going to be punished. And this is what the regime wants, wants this person to do. And so it's a, it's a form, a kind of perverted form of propaganda saying, well, look, we have a freedom to criticize and so everything's okay. Commission criticism was very different and it was not condoned And the outcome of such criticism was unclear. Would this person be thrown into jail? Would the passport be revoked? Would there be ways in which that that person who had spoken out so um, bravely and outrageously against the regime, if he was not made to pay in some ways, but rather continued to um, to live perfectly well, or as in the case of somebody like Sarah um was actually um, sponsored by the government to go to London for regular cancer cancer treatments. Did that turn the this person into a, a court jester? And so, in some ways, these. Artists, activists were between the Scylla and Charybdis of loss of freedom or life, and on the other hand, not being taken seriously. And yet each time they were risking risking everything that mattered to them. So this was the situation in a society that I have described as atomized. And there I'm using Hannah Arendt's term Mm -hmm. um, that she used, of course, in describing in on totalitarianism the situation inside Hitler's Germany. And it's it's true, of course, like all great books, they should um, apply well beyond the particular case to the universal. what she talks about um, in Hitler's Germany fit very well for, for Syria, and that is everybody is afraid of everybody. I'm afraid of my spouse, of my parents, of my children, of my teacher, of my, my school friends. I'm afraid that they're going to write a report that will then be sent to the Mukhabarat, to the um, intelligence service, and so I will be punished for maybe making fun of of Hafez Assad. And so this this country that I knew in 95, 96 was a country where people were afraid pretty much to um, talk out loud um, about anything that even had the slightest whiff of politics, lest their words be twisted in a report. And so what was extraordinary when the revolution broke out was to see the the streets flooded with these people who had been so atomized that they didn't dare to speak to each other.
0: Um, well, you also described the period in the late 2000s, or sort of 2008 and 2009, as, um, and this is to use the words of your actors, as the wall of fear cracking. Um, so, how can we characterize this opening up in light of this uh, regime of fear that you just described? And did artists take advantage of it?
1: Yeah, great. Yes, that was the big um, gap. So, when Hafiz when Asso died in 2000 and his son, the ophthalmologist, um, was returned from London to Damascus. He was not at all trained to be a politician. In fact, his brother, Basil, who uh, died in a car crash in, in 1994, was the one who'd been groomed to be leader. And because Bashar seemed so unsuited to the the task of leadership, I think Hafez said never really worked on grooming him for, for the job as he had done with his, uh, his older son. So when Bessel came, came to power, which was around the time that um, two other sons were coming to power, one in Jordan and the other in Morocco, there was an expectation that the younger generation would change things, that there would be a transformation in the system as there had been when Muhammad VI took over from his father Hassan II in Morocco, and when Abdullah took over from his father Hussein, King Hussein, in Jordan. So for the first few months, there were a lot of new liberties. People were allowed to meet, they even allowed to meet in sort of semi-formal, context in something that is referred to as a muntada or montada yet, which are like the Paris salons of the 19th century, people meeting um, semi-publicly, sometimes in homes, sometimes in, in clubs to um, discuss pretty much whatever they liked. Um, Bashar closed down the two worst prisons, one in Meze and the other in Tadmor, which is Palmyra. And there was a sense that there was a radically new Syria in the making. But of course, what happened was that the freedoms became too much for the regime to deal with. There were a number of documents that intellectuals had put together asking for real freedoms, not just, you know, these almost, uh, I don't know, dinner party freedoms, asking for, for radical change. And then, in 2006, there was a huge famine that brought the, the country, particularly the rural parts, to the edge of rebellion, So people had smelt freedom, had felt that they had enough power behind them that they could demand, that changes, radical changes, could demand a revolution almost. And it was then that the Bashar regime started to crack down in very familiar ways to those who had been through the Hafez regime. And the reason I say that it was familiar was that when Bashar took over, as I mentioned, not trained, shaped, groomed for the job as president of Syria, he had no men and women that he brought in with him, no seasoned politicians. And so basically, he just stepped into his father's shoes, and nothing around him changed in terms of the personnel. The atmosphere changed, but the people didn't change. And so the draconian measures that Hafez Assad and his entourage had established in the country from 1970, when Hafez Assad took over to 2000 when he died, were in place, and Bashar could then fall back on that, on that old system. But why say that the, the wall of fear had cracked? And throughout the Arab Spring countries, everybody talked about the wall of fear. It had cracked because of the Damascus Spring of 2000 that everybody dates differently. It was at least a few months in 2000, and for some it went on until about 2004 people had begun to understand what it was like to be able to meet with each other, to not be afraid to discuss what was wrong with the system, not to anticipate that every word would be twisted and turned into some kind of indictment in a report. And so although, as I said, Hafez Assad's men were there to replace the, the old draconian systems, the people had tasted what it was like to be able to talk to each other. So they were no longer as afraid of each other, um, no longer as afraid of, of the regime and the muhabarat or the secret service. So I think that's where one can begin to see the cracks. As um, Leonard Cohen said, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light comes in. And I think there was a crack in everything in the Syrian regime. And the light that came in, of course, was a revolution.
0: So the revolution more or less Begins with the Arab Spring in the spring of two thousand eleven, as you mentioned in March in Daraa. So, in the Syrian context, at least. So, how quickly do we begin to see art embodying the revolution and the ensuing conflict?
1: Artists who had um, who were already practicing, uh, some of them were were painting. When I and in this case, I'm talking about artists who had um, been educated in the. Damascus Academy of Art. There were also um, writers, um, particularly uh, dramatists, who had been trained in the um, Syrian Academy of Dramatic Arts. And so they immediately started to produce work. There's um, the, the most famous, and I think most famous outside the country artist um, is, artist-activist, is a man called Ali Farzat. And he had been um, producing caricatures for years and years and years, quite careful in terms of what uh, Sadiq al-Azam called the line between dissidence and martyrdom. So that's an important line that most of them tried to, to get close to, but not to step onto the other side into martyrdom. So Ali Farzad had always been functioning on that line between dissidence and martyrdom. And when the Damascus Spring broke out, blossomed, he started a, um, a, a I guess, well, we could call it what a cartoon magazine or a, a, not a graphic mag- magazine, but a... He had a a magazine called Adomari, which is the lamplighter. And it lasted for two years. It was closed down, but it was full of very daring uh, oppositional work. And one of the images that that I use in my book was one that came out um, during that period. Actually, I think it was around 2006. So five years be- before the actual revolution broke out. And it's an image of a cell in the Tadmor prison. Tadmor, as I said, being Palmyra, for people who don't know that in Arabic, Palmyra is Tadmor. And it, it shows a prisoner hanging from hooks, like meat hooks, from the wall. Um, A hand has been amputated, a foot has been amputated. He's obviously dying. And seated on the floor next to him, surrounded by his torture tools and blood from the dripping body, is his torturer who is weeping um, as he watches a soap opera. And I thought this was such a remarkable image because... Before 2000, even to use the name Tadmor, the Palmyra prison, was um, taboo. You couldn't talk about it. Um, Those prisoners whom I met when I was there and afterwards, who had spent any time in either Tadmor or Meze or Sidnaya, they weren't allowed to talk about their time there. And here was this cartoon that, um, that had gone viral. So again, Ali Farzad was one of the very first to, literally, <laughs> um, what is the term? You, you stick a finger or something to, to the regime. Um, and it happened in August. So about five months, after the the beginning of the revolution, he's picked up in Damascus by some of the government thugs. They take him to a desert area near the airport, beat the living daylights out of him, and are particularly concerned to crush his fingers, telling him, okay, you think that you can produce resistance and rebellion in the people through what your fingers produce, your fingers will not produce anything anymore. So he was taken, he was found, taken to a prison, and somebody took a photograph of him lying in bed, all bandaged up. So when his hands and fingers healed, which they did beautifully, he then produced a, um, a cartoon of himself in bed with his fingers bandaged and the middle finger um, upright to Bashar. So this is, you think you can stop me? No, you can't. So that was one, that was one of the first really effective um, images that went viral. He also was um, the first whose work was posted to an, an extraordinary site that I hope your listeners will, will go to. And it's called The Creative Memory of the Syrian Revolution. Yes. It's a site that was launched in um, early 2013 by um, a woman called Sana Yeziki, who is a, a graphic artist. And she had noticed how how much how actually I'm mean, to say how much is too little, um the tsunami of uh creative works that had been produced right from the beginning of the revolution. And so she put she designed this website the first caricature that, that was posted to um this Creative Memory of the, uh, of the Syrian Revolution site was another um, cartoon um, by Ali Farzat, and it's called At the Art of the Douali, or International Sympathy. And he shows on the left a, a bent-over um, man holding out a cup like a begging bowl, and lined up are four figures who are obviously internation- international leaders. One looks Chinese, um, another looks Russian, and each one is dropping two tears into his bowl, obviously crocodile tears.
0: No, I also highly recommend that site, not simply for visual art, but also music and uh, film. It's really comprehensive and truly an attempt to, um, to represent uh, the memory of the Syrian people. Um, so what I'm getting from you is that there are these mixed themes of hope, violence, and resistance. And I was wondering, how, how do your artists, your actors, how do they balance these themes, and in order to tell um, a productive story. Yeah, I I think actually I would
1: I would uh, maybe reverse the order that you've just um, said, and that is violence, <laughs> and then the absolute radical need to resist it, and not to resist it in its own terms. So you can't destroy the master's house with the master's tools, but there has to be another way, and then what drives the resistance is the commitment to hope that they will, through the, their works, not only assure the world that the, the revolution is ongoing, but that the revolution will do what revolutions do, and that is to turn a system upside down they can't be shut up because uh, in the internet age, whatever they put onto the web, it can be be silenced in one place, it'll pop up somewhere else. And so I think what, what we're seeing here would not have been possible, let's say, even 20 years ago, you know, because without uh, YouTube or or Facebook or blogging, um, it would not be possible for these artists activists to be as empowered as they are, and they're empowered by the fact that maybe, if not in the beginning, certainly not long after they had started producing their works, they realized. That, the, that people were noticing what they were doing, that it mattered to the people inside Syria and outside Syria that the commitment to the revolution was staunch, that there was nothing that the um, Assad regime did that, to the people, to the works that could stop the revolution. So, yes, this theme of hope is an interesting one. And this was made explicit in the 2016 Bordeaux Festival des Arts. So every October, Bordeaux has an an arts festival. And the organizers of last year's festival had heard of Sana Yazigi and had um, invited her to participate in the 2016 festival, and they they asked her if she would provide uh, 30 30 images from the site. So as I said, she launched the site in early 2013. Unbelievably, by the time the festival came around. There were 23,000 works on the site. She doesn't have a single piece of documentary um, evidence. She doesn't take photographs unless it is a photograph that has somehow been um, manipulated by someone in in a creative way. Because she says, you know, the the media is full of documentary evidence. This is not what the site is about. It is about creative memory. It's about creative memory for the future, always thinking about how is it that people are going to look back to this period and how are they going to be able to assess the role of the people who said no to, um, to Bashar. So back to Bordeaux. So she has to sift through tens of thousands of images and find 30. And she decided because, as she said to me, and we've been much in touch, um, what became evident to her was that so many of these images were images of hope. They could be. Angry. They, they, the videos could be um, insulting. I have a chapter in Dancing in Damascus, a whole chapter on insulting Bashar. But what really under underscores everything that is on this site is the whole question of hope. And so she picked her thirty pieces, and the the major piece for the the show was of a look it's a, a piece of graffiti and it's done by uh, somebody who is referred to as the Banksy of Syria. He's anonymous. And it's a um a graffiti that he did on a broken piece of concrete off a recently destroyed building. And it's of a little girl, she's balancing precariously on a pile of uh, skulls to indicate a mass grave. And tiptoeing on top of them, she's writing in English the word hope. So I thought that that, that was one of the most um, inspiring uh, but also grimmest im images from this um, from this collection and without hope there would be no art. there would be no music because even out of music there has been extraordinary violence. there is a case of um, Ibrahim Khshush who in uh, I think it was 2014 led a crowd. In a, in a song that can be found online, very, very powerful song that um, basically says, uh, okay, Bashar, just go. And then, so he'll sing it, uh, Yala, ya Bashar, Irhal, and the crowd then shouting it back. Crowd, in if when you look at it on YouTube, and again, I hope the uh, listeners will go to these sites, um, the crowd is so huge that, that it cannot be contained um, within the image of, on YouTube. And so the enormous excitement. The following day, this all happened in Hama, um, and through Hama runs a river called the, the Orontes. So on the following day, in the Orontes River, was found Khashush's corpse with his throat cut. So within a week, and this is something also that absolutely is astounding, um, an artist, Wissam al had produced an image, and it was an oil painting, so not something that you can throw together overnight. An oil painting of Khashush His throat deeply cut, blood pouring out of it, but also flying out of it is a bird. And the bird is the bird of freedom. He indicates that in English for the international audience that he wants. And the bird is covered in blood, but nonetheless, it's soaring towards freedom."
0: What I really like about that is that 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 says something about the interplay of different art forms, in addition to, of course, the interplay of all of these different themes, which is hope amidst great violence, hope as an act of resistance. But then again, you see oil painting interacting with music albeit indirectly um so i wanted to ask you how did you actually collect source material for the book because in many points of the book you reference your own personal experiences you visit, a, you visit an artist colony in uh, a in in lebanon at some point um so sort of how do the how do, how do your own personal experiences interplay with the sources and also what does the collection of sources look yeah like? what did it look like for this project um,
1: I, I have not been back uh, to Syria since the revolution broke out um, for obvious reasons, way too dangerous. But I have, I've spent uh, quite a bit of time in Turkey and uh, a little bit of time in Beirut. Years I've, I've spent a long time in, in Lebanon, but again, not since the, the revolution, just a few weeks and in both Turkey and Beirut and in Paris and also in Manchester, England, I've met with artist activists and um, spent, spent time with them. So the place that you were talking about in Ale, it's called Art Residence Ale. It is a, as, as it says, an art residence, but it was... Designed specifically for artists who are fresh out of Syria, the the woman who runs it is um, is Syrian. She's an art um, benefactor, um, an engineer also, and she had to she had to come to Beirut also, like Sonayez again in two thousand and twelve, and. Because she had worked so closely with artists inside Syria, and she knew that many had had to escape, she decided that what she would do is find a place in the mountains above Beirut, so not far from the Syrian border, where they, she could provide the artists with shelter, materials, and the space to breathe um, without fear and perhaps to, to produce art. So in Ale, she found a, an old Ottoman stable that had been pretty damaged during the civil war in Lebanon between 75 and 90. And as an engineer, she, um, she converted it she kept it looking very much the way it would have looked as stables, but obviously, you know, put in a kitchen, bathrooms, and um, it's quite, quite lovely. And so for, um, from 2012 until 2015, I think it continues now, but she, she moved to London Artists will would be picked up from the border. Somehow the message would have gotten out that the artists were, were making their way um, to or just beyond the border. She'd pick the artists up and then take them immediately there. And so by the time I got there in the summer of 2015, there had been many artists who had spent minimum of two weeks, sometimes two months there, um, sometimes alone, sometimes three or four together. And then once they had um, had their time up in the mountains, she then arranged for them to find places in Beirut. And it was from there, through exhibitions that she put together or sometimes exhibitions up in the Ale, that these artists would earn enough to be able to, um, in some cases, um, go to Europe. And so some of these artists who would have remained totally internationally unknown had they stayed in in Syria, and I'm not talking during the revolution, but in general, um, have now become internationally famous and... um, a man like Tamam Azem is now fetching uh, tens of thousands of dollars for um, for his works. So that was one. Um, there were artists also, artists activists in in Istanbul, where I um, have been teaching uh, part time uh, every fall and so i met with artists there and and had heard their stories and you know not all of these artists activists are totally behind the revolution one that i i met uh, khalid akil whom i met while i was in istanbul is is more concerned about contesting islamic state particularly the atrocities in the Yazidi region of Iraq's Mount Sinjar than he is in um, saying no to to, um, the Assad regime. So I was less interested um, in, I was very interested in his work, but I'm not at all interested in the artists that some people have said to me, well, you know what about the the artists who um, are painting, creating works um, about the about the regime, or how about those who are working with the Islamist groups? You know, the the Nusra Front or Al Qaeda or Daesh, Islamic State. And what I said is that the artists that interest me are not ones who are producing propaganda. They don't have a leader. They don't have an ideology. They don't have a blueprint for a future Syria. But they have a commitment to each other. And in that commitment to each other, a belief that there there will emerge a new Syria out of their work.
0: No, I think that's, I completely agree with that on a political level. I think that that's the response. These individuals have a responsibility to society at large and to commemorating not only their experience, but the experiences of of those they hold dear. So I think that that's absolutely the right choice. And I'm I'm glad I think the book is very rich for it. I think um, the book is just so dense with different examples of these artists and their, their different commitments and feelings within the, uh, their commitment to the idea of the revolution as well. Um, so congratulations. It's truly an extraordinary work. Um, you called it a small book, but it's quite dense. Well, and thank you so much. So we always close the interview with a question concerning what it, what you're working on right now. I realize the book just came out and you're probably still winding down from that, but do you have any future projects in mind? Are you working on yes, something right now? Yes, I have right many now? projects,
1: <laughs> but the, the one that is, um, <laughs> really absorbing me at the moment is I I call it war against uh, no, war as Miriam, sorry, start again I'll start again, okay so you you edit out what I just said so I have many projects but the one that is uh, um, really absorbing me at the moment is Rape as a Weapon of War from Rome to Raqqa and I've been uh, particularly concerned with something that is called Fatwa 64, which is a fatwa that was promulgated by the research and fatwas (laughs) um, department of Islamic State, A, a bunch of wicked crooks who have uh, put out a fatwa, a legal opinion, about how it is um, permissible for Islamic State men to rape non-Muslim women. And I was so horrified um, by this fatwa that became public knowledge in December of 2015 Um, Zena Bangura of the UN Security Council um, talked about it. So in in December of 2015, that I decided to to do some research into it. And in the last year, two books have been written by um, two women who were sex slaves of Islamic State, and each one of them writing her testimonial. Actually, in both cases, they dictated their their testimonials to um, women journalists who either knew uh, Kurdish or Arabic, and then the works were translated into, um, in one case, into into German and the other into English. So Nadia Murad's The Last Girl is a... It, it came out actually on last week, <laughs> so I'm I'm halfway through it. But what has interested me about these Yazidi women is their enormous um, courage in talking out about what, what has happened to them, because everybody thought, oh well, including the Islamic State men. Who were raping these women under the most disgusting of circumstances? It was like, oh, you you women have um, you live in a society that is so judgmental and that will not believe you, and if they do, they will reject you, and you might as well be dead. Within a society like that, that that was patriarchal, and that. Um, did have all of the sort of conservative restrictive mores of conservative um, Islamic societies Um, these women are speaking out and there have been interviews um, taken with people inside the Yazidi community including men where these Yazidi men have been asked, um, so what do you think about women like Nadia Murad and Farida Khalaf coming out and speaking openly about having been sexually ravaged by dozens and dozens of men. Are you ashamed of, of these women? And... Apparently, uniformly, the answer has been no, these are extraordinary women.
0: Well, I'm glad that you're going to get to partake in this project. It sounds like it'll be really productive, not simply on an academic level, but on a greater social level. Yes, as as is this book. Thank you so much for sitting down with me to talk about it today.